Nuclear contamination. It's easy to ignore the radioactivity left over from any nuclear activity. Hey, it's invisible, it's got no smell, no taste, or any other way of detecting it without complex, expensive equipment. That is, unless you're looking at health problems that can be caused by exposure to it. Well, the signs are in a lot of places. The last thing you want to learn is that some nuclear radioactive something or another in your area that you've ignored or written off as irrelevant to your life may be more present, more prominent, and more dangerous than you ever imagined. So when a genuine expert who studies the sources and behaviors of radioisotopes in the environment tells you, the breadcrumbs are here. For this school has been a receptor. It has received contamination from the past. And indeed, we should expect that of any building anywhere near this Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant. Zahn's Corner is not an exception by any means. You know, if we wanted to look at the high school or if we wanted to look at all the churches or at everybody's house, anywhere within 10, 15 miles of Portsmouth, this contamination is gone. We'd probably find it anywhere we looked. Yow. Well, when you hear information like that from Michael Ketterer, Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry, who studies the sources and behaviors of radioisotopes in the environment, you know it's a pretty sure bet that you have just found yourselves smack in the middle of that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we look at the ongoing problems to residents of South Ohio from the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon. This is a site that enriched uranium for U.S. weapons programs from 1954 to 2001. The Department of Energy is charged with cleaning up the site, and the problems are more extensive and wide-ranging than they have been willing to admit. So we talk with Michael Ketterer. He is Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry from Northern Arizona University, and he studies the sources and behaviors of radioisotopes in the environment. Ketterer has been directly involved with investigation of the site and surrounding area on behalf of concerned citizens. And here he brings us up to date on his most recent findings, none of them good news for people or the environment. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, an exciting announcement about Nuclear Hot Seat's new nonprofit status, and more honest nuclear information than Herschel Walker will ever be able to wrap his head around. 
All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 29, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Ukraine, after the November 20th shelling around the site, which saw at least a dozen shells exploded at the plant, International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Rafael Grossi said, Explosions occurred at the site of this major nuclear power plant, which is completely unacceptable. Whoever is behind this, it must stop immediately. Right, like Ukraine would bomb itself. On November 23rd, shelling of power infrastructure in Ukraine by Russian troops led to blackouts that caused emergency diesel generators to start up at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and the three other reactor sites in Ukraine, marking the first time all 15 of the nation's nuclear reactors have been offline. Over the past weekend, Russia was first rumored to be planning to give up Zaporizhia, and then on Monday the 28th, That thought was staunchly denied by Russia. And now, Moscow has banned Ukrainian technicians who have refused to sign contracts with Russia's Rosatom atomic energy firm from entering the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and working there. As most of the technicians are reportedly refusing to sign, Russia is soon going to be very low on people available to work at Zaporizhia. And for more on Ukraine and nuclear, here's... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none When 60 Minutes, the CBS Network News Magazine, does an interview, you'd like to be able to expect that it would be sharp, insightful, cut through disinformation and spin, and nail the subject to the wall. Which is why the November 20th interview by Leslie Stahl of Rafael Grossi, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, was such a letdown. It actually had me screaming at the TV set. He manipulated, she fumbled. For example, Stahl said, Zaporizhia has been shelled repeatedly since March with both sides blaming the other but no question as to why Ukraine might be wasting missiles by attacking itself, what it would have to gain, and why the he-said-she-said nature of this comment didn't bring up the possibility of Russian gaslighting. Stahl later asked Grossi, when you went to inspect, you could go anywhere? Grossi said, we are the IAEA. We are known as the nuclear watchdog, which wasn't an answer to the question that was asked. Stahl went on, There were reports that you weren't allowed into some crisis rooms there. Grossi. Well, there were some areas that, where we were limited. But all things we needed to see, we could see. How did he know that? If you didn't see it, how do you know? No follow-up on that one. Stahl. Is Mr. Putin trying to use this plant as a weapon? Someone said to us, this is his dirty bomb, this plant. And Grossi said, if you protect it, there's no dirty bomb. Yeah, there is. It just hasn't been triggered yet, but it's still there, and so is the potential for its use. Nowhere did Stahl bring up the information that within the IAEA charter, it states that it is to make provision to meet the needs of research, development, and practical application of atomic energy for peaceful purposes, including the production of electric power which qualifies as a bias and a major red flag to the answer she's receiving. And there was much more, but even in this little sample, you can see why Rafael Grossi, Leslie Stahl, 
and 60 minutes. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Here in the U.S., catching up with Nuclear Regulatory Commission reports, the NRC has confirmed that at Peach Bottom 2 in Pennsylvania, operators' screw-up last May caused the plant to scram, and now it is being placed under increased regulatory oversight. An inspection at the Watts Bar nuclear plant in Tennessee found a chilled work environment. No, not overactive air conditioners. A chilled work environment means individuals are hesitant to raise nuclear safety concerns for fear of retaliation. And many employees in the chemistry department were found to have the perception that nothing will be done about their concerns. At Calvert Cliffs Nuclear Plant near Washington, D.C., contamination by foreign material during maintenance caused a piston in the emergency diesel generator to melt during a February 2022 test, resulting in a white finding, which stands for a low to moderate safety risk. And regarding the proposed new-scale small modular nuclear reactor design, NRC staff have identified, quote, several challenging and or significant issues with the design, noting that it's still a work in progress. And New Scale's response? A proposal to reduce the number of phases in the licensing review for the operating license application that would eliminate an early review by the Advisory Committee on Reactor Safeguards. We'll have a link up to an article by Carl Grossman, Nuclear Guinea Pigs, NRC's Licensing of Experimental Nuclear Plants. Check it out at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 597. Over to Japan, where environmentalists and journalists who are members of countries of the Indian Ocean Rim Association are investigating the impact of Fukushima's controversial plan to dump radioactive water, tritium-contaminated water, into the ocean. They have joined with NGOs, environmental associations such as Greenpeace, experts and professors in atomic energy, doctors, researchers specializing in diseases related to uncontrolled exposure to atomic substances, to denounce this measure as irresponsible, and to challenge the silence of the International Atomic Energy Agency on this situation. Meanwhile, China is working both sides against the middle on this issue by first saying that it supports the IAEA and its task force in reviewing Japan's treatment of nuclear contaminated water, and then saying just because China supports the task force's work does not mean it approves of Japan's decision to discharge the contaminated water. So which one is it, dudes? More on Russia. At the 2022 Atom Expo organized by the Russian Department of Atomic Energy, Rose Adams signed roughly 50 agreements on various businesses related to nuclear energy. Most of the countries which signed included those in Africa, but included Nicaragua, the Republic of Burundi, Zimbabwe, Belarus, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan, which is looking into the possibility of building its first nuclear power plant. Russian President Vladimir Putin touted Russia's Arctic power at a flag-raising ceremony and dock launch for two nuclear-powered icebreakers in the Western Arctic. But we will link to an article by Charles Diggs of the Bologna Foundation on how war puts cleanup of Russia's radioactive wrecks in the Arctic on ice. And just so you know, last year, solar and wind made up three-quarters of the total new electricity generation capacity installed worldwide, and with other renewables, the total figure was 84%, with nuclear nowhere in sight. 
We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I've got great news for you. Nuclear Hot Seat has just received federal approval as a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. That means that when you donate to the show, it is now tax-deductible. I know you appreciate the show. Hearing the week's nuclear news on Nuclear Hot Seat, we give you in-depth interviews with genuine experts, a little bit of humor along the way when we can manage, and acknowledgments and shout-outs to activists and activities around the world who oppose nuclear. Where else would you get all this in one easy-to-swallow weekly package? That's why we have taken this step, because this show runs on donations, your donations. And now, They are tax-deductible, another way of showing our gratitude. As we go into the holiday season, we need your year-end help more than ever. So listen up, because this is important. You can help keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running. It's your support that makes the difference. So please, consider making a donation of any size. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. We've got that red button all over the place. Click on it, and that's where you can make a one-time donation of any size. Or, to sustain us while you stick with your budget, you can set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month. Here in the U.S., that's the same as the cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. So isn't Nuclear Hot Seat worth a cup of coffee? Help us out this month, and if you can, every month, and know that your donation is now tax-deductible. So help us keep the show running by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, clicking on the red button, and donating what you can. Know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. The Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Ohio, was the site of uranium enrichment for the U.S. nuclear weapons program. It operated from 1954 to 2001, and now the Department of Energy is in charge of cleaning up the site. But how good a job are they doing? How contaminated is the site? And how far has this radioactive contamination spread? To learn more, we spoke with Michael Ketterer. He is Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University. And this former Ohio resident studies the sources and behaviors of radioisotopes in the environment. He's been in the thick of discovering problems around the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant site, and there's a lot more coming. To learn the latest, I spoke with Michael Ketterer on Friday, November 25th, 2022. Michael Ketterer, it is great to have you back with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to talk with you, Libby. Let's give people an idea of the kind of work that you do. You've described yourself to me as, quote, a source, signature, transport, fate guy who does his own lab measurements. What do you mean by that? First of all, I'm an analytical chemist, and that means that I have a background in chemistry, but I also measure things, concentrations and compositions, components present in samples. I specialize in measurements of low concentrations of certain elements like uranium and plutonium and neptunium in environmental samples. And I also do what you might call uh, forensics work where I'm trying to 
trace materials from one place to another by following them in the environment as they're released, as they're transported in water and air, as they wind up in uh, receptors such as soil or people's homes or whatever. I try to make the links of what came from where. And as I said, I do my own laboratory work. I have a laboratory in Flagstaff at Northern Arizona University where I do a lot of this work using what is called mass spectrometry, which counts atoms and can measure how many you have and distinguish between isotopes, which tells us rather a lot about where things come from. So that's an overview of me. You clearly state on all of your reports that the work that you do is pro bono. And I wonder, how can you manage that? And why do you state it so clearly? When it is the case, I wish to state that I have no competing financial interest. I am retired. I'm, I guess you'd say, financially able to get by without expecting everybody to pay me for everything. I do other types of work that people do pay me for laboratory work and other types of work, but I managed to get by. And I do believe very strongly that people that live in areas like near Portsmouth, they need to have access to the same kinds of high quality scientific tools that say our government uses in their work. The public needs to have access to these types of technologies. And I I realize that people can't really pay what these things would truly cost, it's okay. I am able to uh, get by doing things that way. And thank you for it. So let's get into some of the specifics. How and when did you become involved with the Portsmouth site? I became involved with the Portsmouth site in 2018. I had recently, uh, I should say, retired, but I, I left a position at Metropolitan State University in Denver, and then I was thinking about, well, what kinds of scientific or technical activities could I do in upcoming years? I was looking at U.S. nuclear sites, and it struck me that I didn't know a whole lot about the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant. Also, it didn't seem like there was a lot of very definitive information on what was going out into the environment. Of course, I read DOE site environmental reports, ACER reports, as they call them, A-S-E-R reports. I read some of those reports. And in September of 2018, I had the need to make a trip to Ohio. And I went a little bit out of my way, rented a car, and drove over to the Portsmouth vicinity and I wanted to have a look at the place and I took a few surreptitious uh, samples and took them to our laboratory at NAU in Flagstaff and I analyzed them and it became clear to me immediately that there was a lot of off-site contamination at that site and so it said to me you know the public really needs to be aware of this because it doesn't look like there's a lot of this hard information out there that yes, the DOE is doing studies, but it seems like they're tying themselves in knots to not say what is really going on. So I took it upon myself. I got in contact with a number of different people in the Portsmouth vicinity. That culminated in uh, an April 2019 report that I did with Elizabeth Lamerson, a local resident, and Scott Say Cheney, who was a colleague of mine at NAU. And we came out with a report that had some very shocking things in it, such as the 
Zahn's Corner Elementary School has enriched uranium in the attic, and the creeks have enriched uranium dissolved in the water, and there's Neptunium in the environment. That's not from atomic weapons fallout. You know, that's kind of how I got going. And then once we came out with that report in April 2019, I mean, my role in this site has become much more public, and uh, I've been accosted by the DOE. They put a lot of effort into using Savannah River National Laboratory to try to discredit my work. You know, I've kept at it, and I think that there's plenty that is still to be done. Let's roll this back a little and look at what DOE has been doing at this site. Now, the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant has been closed since 2000. So what is DOE doing there that makes them still so involved? Well, my understanding of the history of the site is it went into a series of standby and shutdown modes between about 2000 and approximately 2010, 2011. And then they commenced about a decade of what they called D&D, deactivation and decommissioning. So what they were doing was removing all the gaseous diffusion plant equipment decontaminating the plumbing, all the converters and the piping that was inside the building, and removing all of that prior to in 2021, middle of last year, they started demolition of the so-called X-326 building on the site. So there is more building demolition yet to come, but this is a process that has taken two decades already from when the last uranium enrichment was taking place. And they're nowhere near being done with removing everything and making it all right again. How effective and or safe would you say the Department of Energy's methodology has been in doing this work? There is no question about it that they have released enormous amounts of material into the air and the water, and I'd say principally in the air, in these stages of deactivation and decommissioning and now open air demolition of the buildings. And in support of my statement, one can look at DOE's own data for technetium-99 in the air in the decade between about 2010 and the present. Technetium-99 is a radioisotope that was a contaminant in the uranium that was introduced into the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant. So there were massive amounts of it inside the plumbing. Well, during the D&D, as they called it, they did a process that was called LTLT, low temperature, long time, or long time, low temperature. What they were doing was filling up the plumbing of the gaseous diffusion cells and the piping and so on with this reactive gas, bromine trifluoride, I believe was one of the substances that they used. And then they would heat the thing and the idea would be they would try to get all of the material, which would consist of uranium, neptunium, plutonium, technetium, all in the form of fluorides, and they try to get them into vapors and remove them from the cascade. Well, long and short of it is we know that there were enormous concentrations of technetium-99 in the air in the middle of last decade. So in the 2013 to about 2016 timeframe, in fact, 
you can go to a monitor 14 miles southwest of Portsmouth at DOE's monitoring station A37, which is at a little place called Otway. It's about 14 miles southwest of Portsmouth. During this time when they were doing this removal of stuff from the Cascade, the Tech 99 concentrations in air were pretty much the same at Otway as they were at the fence line. So enormous amounts of stuff being removed from the Cascade. And they trapped a lot of it. And there's a report done by a contractor for the DOE. The trapped material was sent to the Nevada National Nuclear Security Site in 2018. And that shows essentially the composition of the material, the fingerprint or the composition or the constituents of the material being removed from the cascade. It shows all the isotopes that we're talking about, not only the uranium, but all the contaminants in the uranium. You have referred in your reports to a spent trap media. What is that and what are your concerns about it? Well, the spent trap media are materials that DOE used during the deactivation and decommissioning to try to scrub out contaminants from the gaseous diffusion plant plumbing and to try to remove them into these solid materials. And that's what the trap is essentially. So to try to chemically absorb them in, remove them from a gas stream. And the spent trap media had to be, they had so much radioactivity in them that the DOE decided they need to go to this Nevada National Security Site. So they had to do a report characterizing the material. The significance of this to me is that this is a very good fingerprint of all of the material that they were putting out into the air because they were able to trap a good deal of it, but it's not a perfect process. You know, not every single atom is actually trapped in these media. A lot of it just leaked out into the air. And that's what we see in the DOE air monitoring data that I gave you the example of the Tech 99. So you released your first report in April of 2019. What was shown by that and how was it received by the community and by DOE? I'd say that the DOE and the community responded in diametrically opposed fashions to what I had to say. I think the community for the most part understood what I was saying and they, I think, found credibility in the science that I was doing, it was explained very openly and in very clear terms. I think the DOE's reaction was very disappointing, if we can say that. The DOE pushed back saying that things like, we don't believe that the Neptunium that you're finding could have come from Portsmouth. We believe it's from nuclear weapons testing fallout. They refused to believe things such as a house that was built in 2007 could have fresh contamination in the attic dust, which was in fact found to be the case from these mechanisms and pathways that I've been describing, such as the D&D process. But the DOE's own health physicists could not stomach that. The DOE hired Savannah River to try to discredit what I was doing. I think it's all very disappointing to see. 
as things stand today, I don't think that the DOE has really accomplished its mission of discrediting what I have to say, because just last month, Jennifer Granholm was talking with Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Sherrod Brown about how the community has suffered greatly and has made great contributions in the interest of national security. And of course, they deserve a new school. This brings us to the case with the Zahn's Corner School, Mm -hmm. which, again, it seems like every time you publish a report, there is some explosive response. You should pardon the expression in nuclear terms. Sure. How did you first become involved with examining the Zahn's Corner Middle School? And what were the findings that you released in April of 2019? I first became aware of Zahn's Corner School as a result of my work with Elizabeth Lamerson. Elizabeth is a local resident who worked with me and collected samples. And it was essentially her idea to go and sample the school. And so I gave her advice on going by these essentially wet wipes, baby wipes, and go poke your nose into the attic and wipe Uh, whatever dirt you see on any surfaces where dirt is accumulated. And so Elizabeth got those samples. We did this on two separate occasions. And we analyzed those samples multiple times with more than one mass spectrometer. And I came repeatedly to the conclusion that there was enriched uranium present. And I was always clear to define what I mean by enriched uranium is that the isotope ratios 235 and 238 differ from nature. And the reason they differ from nature is because that's what the Portsmouth plant does is they enriched uranium. So there's mixing between naturally occurring uranium and uranium coming from ports. And so I said quite clearly that the Zahn's Corner School has been affected by these emissions in the past. The DOE, of course, they didn't want to hear that, but they took this all a different way. They set out to prove that the activities or the concentrations of these isotopes of interest aren't enough to hurt anybody. And I never said that these were going to hurt somebody who was at the school, I just said, hey, look, the breadcrumbs are here. For This school has been a receptor. It has received contamination from the past. And indeed, we should expect that of any building anywhere near this Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant. Zahn's Corner is not an exception by any means. You know, if we wanted to look at the high school, or if we wanted to look at all the churches or at everybody's house, anywhere within 10, 15 miles of Portsmouth, this contamination is gone. We'd probably find it anywhere we looked. But the DOE also conducted some of their own sampling on behalf of the Pike County General Health District. I conducted analysis of the DOE samples, and I found the same thing. There was enriched uranium in their samples, although what they were doing was problematic because they were using these glass fiber wipes, which had a very high baseline amount of uranium in them. So my colleague Elizabeth Lamerson did a lot better than the Savannah River National Laboratory team did in selecting a suitable material. So she went to the dollar store and bought wet wipes, and that worked better than what Savannah River National Labs did. I'm suppressing my laughter right now because it's well, it's, it's so typical. Our tax dollars at work. 
or not. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really know what to say other than when you're looking for uranium and what its isotope fingerprint is and whether it's enriched uranium or not, did it come from nature? Did it come from the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant? You don't want to use, you know, this substrate that's already contaminated. You want something that's very clean. So I'm befuddled by what they were doing. I still am. Moving right along with your greatest hits, in April of 2021, you sent an extensive memo to the health commissioner of the Pike County General Health District to inform him of the presence of Neptunium-237 in the groundwater at the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant. And here I'm quoting you when I read, DOE's past actions of irresponsible disposal of transuranic waste, including neptunium-237 and plutonium isotopes, have resulted in the groundwater contamination. These are extremely unminced words. What was the impact of this memo that you sent, and what response, if any, did you receive from the health commissioner and from the Department of Energy? Well, I didn't receive any response on this from the Department of Energy. And I think the health commissioner, Matt Brewster, he and I corresponded a little bit with the idea. I said that we should do some environmental monitoring. It never happened. I think that the general health district has so many other worries and responsibilities. This was during COVID and getting people vaccinated and things like that. So I'm not going to fault Matt Brewster for not picking up the ball. But look, this is DOE's problem. This is their doing. I convinced myself of the presence of these contamination plumes by looking at DOE's own data that's in their ASER reports, as well as can be found on a website called Pegasus, P-E-G-A-S-I-S. So it's like an online data storage and retrieval system. So I looked at Pegasus and I figured out there's neptunium found in certain areas of the plant. And I also found I was given documents from Goodyear Atomic Corporation in the 1970s that talked about we are aware of the presence of neptunium in the plant, that there's relatively high concentrations, and they were questioning their own practices for handling these things and for disposal of the waste and exposing workers. So the DOE has known about neptunium at this site for a long, long, long time. And further, I'd say it was really disappointing to me that DOE can't come out with a clear statement to say, you know, there's neptunium in your groundwater and it came from us. That is the obvious conclusion here. But what I also find distressing is uh, DOE seems to have no problem with funding a lot of work to look at the properties of neptunium in water. They funded a major project at Clemson University Some individual got their PhD on this, and it was in collaboration with Savannah River and I believe with Oak Ridge National Lab. So the DOE seems to know quite a lot about Neptunium in water, and they also known for several decades that the Portsmouth site has Neptunium at it, but for 45 years or so, they have not bothered to tell the people of Southern Ohio, hey, there's Neptunium going into the water. And to me, this is a relatively alarming thing because... The chemistry of neptunium is such that it forms a water-soluble substance, a particular ion, which is called neptunyl, N-E-P-T-U-N-Y-L. 
And this Neptunal stays in water under a wide variety of different conditions. And so I think it's probably safe to assume we haven't gotten there yet in terms of producing our own data, but it's safe to assume that the groundwater, the surface water, the soils, the plants, Neptunium is also uptaken into plants. All of this has been affected. And I'll point out too that it looks very much like the same problem exists, maybe even worse, at the Paducah gaseous diffusion plant. And does that mean, from all the things that you mentioned, that it is also in the drinking water? You know, it probably is in the drinking water in some places. If people have wells that are downstream and down gradient of uh, the Portsmouth plant, you know, we don't really have a good handle on that. I think that there are probably some locations where public water supplies could potentially be affected downstream. You know, eventually all of this is going into the Scioto and then the Ohio River, where the dilution factors are relatively high. But, you know, Libby, that's a question that maybe the DOE ought to be answering, or maybe better yet, US EPA and Ohio EPA ought to be characterizing it because it's already left the site. It seems like once it's leaving the site, it's out of DOE's control and it's out of their opportunity to fix the problem. But none of that is happening, it seems. Uh, I've tried to get Ohio EPA interested in this problem with the Neptunium in the water and they don't seem to uh, have any interest in it. Hot potatoes are like that. Now, bringing this more recent, one of the sites you have tested in Pike County is the home of Charles O. Larson. He also goes by the name Chick Larson. How did you get involved with this? Why did you test it? What did you test? And what did you find? Charles or Chick Lawson, and Lawson is the surname, I have known him for a couple of years. I first met him, I believe, in August of 2019. I did a talk at the uh, Piketon High School gym in August of 2019, and I met a lot of people, and I remember meeting Chick. He and I have corresponded for a period of time. Chick Lawson was one of the plaintiffs on a now-dismissed lawsuit against the former contractors a RICO type of lawsuit. I talked with Chick a lot while that suit was still active. And it was really Chick Lawson's idea to conduct this sampling. He wanted to know in the depths of his soul whether his own home was contaminated. And so he and I talked back and forth and we did similar things to what I mentioned about the Zahn's Corner School. We did a round of sampling with wet wipes. He sent me those. I said, oh, well, it looks like we have some enriched uranium here. Then Chick engaged with uh, Cincinnati journalist Dwayne Pullman from Channel 12, WKRC in Cincinnati. And Dwayne Pullman went to Chick's house and filmed the sampling of the attic dust. And what Chick did is he bought a brand new shop vac and collected a nice big bag of couple of kilograms of dirt from up in the attic. And that's what I analyzed. And the findings were really no surprise. There's enriched uranium present, of course. It has uranium-236 in it, which is a contaminant that was introduced into Portsmouth. And it has uh, neptunium-237 in it with a signature that cannot be explained by uh, nuclear weapons testing fallout. And neptunium is a known contaminant at Portsmouth. Goodyear Atomic talked about it in their documents that go back to when I was an undergraduate student. 
And that's a lot of years ago. And so the conclusion from Chick Lawson's attic dust sample was your property is clearly contaminated from past emissions. And also, you know, more seriously, it signifies that people who have lived at this house during the last decades have probably been regularly and continuously exposed to these constituents in the air. They've been breathing in that enriched uranium and that Tech 99 and that Neptunium. They've been breathing those things in. And that brings us to some recent work by Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project. We had Joe on the show last week talking about the Baby Tooth Project, but we didn't touch on this. He has been involved in epidemiological study based on Center for Disease Control and Department of Health Statistics on cancer death rates in the Piketon area. And to summarize his findings, which are rather shocking, when gaseous diffusion plant began operating the 50s and 60s, the cancer death rate in Pike County was 12% below the national average. But in 2019 and 2020, just 40 to 50 years later, the cancer death rate was 32.8% above the U.S. national average. That change occurred only after the time period when ports was in operation. And then from 2009 to 2020, The cancer death rate for people under 75 shows at being 50% higher than the rest of the country and the top 100 counties in the country for cancer deaths. So Pike County has an overall death rate for people under 75 that is 85% higher than the rest of the country. And that breaks down to an average of two extra deaths per week. All of this increase in cancer deaths has arisen since the ports plant was operated and then shut down, and then DOE has been engaged in the quote-unquote cleanup. I know there's a saying that correlation does not equal causation, but is this one of those instances where we can just jump forward and say, yes, it's pretty clear that one plus one equals two? I think in this case, it's pretty clear that one plus one may very well equal two. I am not an epidemiologist, but I do have an understanding of what epidemiology does. And the significance of Mr. Mangano's work, of course, is that he is showing that there's a very, very clear aberration from normal conditions occurring in Pike County with cancer rates and death rates and so on, deaths from all causes. As Joe is very clear to say, and you mentioned about causation and correlation, These data that Joe is assembling do not prove that the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant is the source of the problem in Pike County, but it clearly shows that there is a problem and additional information needs to be brought in to scrutinize, well, is this plant the problem? I think Joe is correct very much in saying, well, it's a very strong possibility. And I would agree with that, too. And as we were talking about a bit earlier, what my work is doing is it's showing that material is leaving the plant and it is being transported offsite through the air, through the water, through these different pathways. And then it is contacting places where people live. It's in the air. Therefore, people are being exposed to it. I'm showing that there is a human exposure pathway possible from this plant. And so it gets us a little bit closer. 
it's kind of a necessary but not sufficient thing to be able to prove that this exposure was occurring. It certainly was. And I think the last thing that really needs to be done is to get into the carcinogenesis of it. Do these things cause cancer? If so, how? Can they produce these effects at the levels, at the concentrations that they are present at in the environment? You know, those are sort of the remaining questions. But I, I think that, you know, we're pretty close to being able to say the obvious. I mean, if this excess death situation is not being caused by Portsmouth, well, let's hear what it is being caused by. You know, why doesn't Ohio Department of Health or the CDC come out and say, well, we don't think it's because of this. We think it's because of this instead. We don't hear any of that. I don't know that there are any other plausible sources. It doesn't seem to me like there really would be. Where do you go from here? You have now quite a track record of, as I've said before, lobbing bombshells into what is going on on the ground, certainly in Pike County with the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant and the problems that have been coming up around it. What is your next area of focus or how are you following up on this latest report? There's a lot of things that I might wish to do in the future on this particular site. The Neptunium in the groundwater and in the surface water is kind of an unanswered question. We know that it's there on the site itself. It's almost certainly coming off of the site. So there's that. I think that there's a good deal of data along the lines of what's present in Chick Lawson's house that needs to be collected. One of the things that's very startling about Mr. Lawson's house is it's on the order of 10, 11 miles south of the plant. It's considerable distance. And the fact that there's such a clear observation of Portsmouth contamination being found at that distance says, well, we need to really understand what is the zone of effect of this plant. We do not have a good understanding of that, but this data point is saying it's quite large. It's probably a lot larger than the DOE may be considering because I believe that they are still working on their independent third-party study, and they were concentrating on six miles of the plant, and Chick Lawson is almost twice that distance. And so I think better characterization of that is going to be necessary. You know, my role here, Libby, is just to find things out along these lines about what is contaminated and where it's from, and then make that information available to the public. Most of the time, it is not happy news. You know, I'm not the bearer of good news in this and many other situations, but the truth is the truth. And, you know, I'm here to speak the truth. And I would sincerely like to see a better direction being taken for not contaminating and exposing the community further to anything more from that nuclear reservation. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about now? I think one of the things that remains to be done is taking this a bit closer to proving human exposure such as biopsy samples, such as autopsy samples, such as using small mammals as proxies for what humans would be exposed to. I think that there's 
a clear situation here that humans are being exposed to these radioisotopes. They're being internally exposed. They're accumulating them in their bodies, in their bones and soft tissues. And we don't really have any of that here in the picture yet. What would be the appropriate category of expert that would need to address this to fill in the missing pieces? I think some types of medical professionals would have to be involved in determining what types of tissues and how to collect this type of information. I would certainly be able to serve as the analytical part of it, the laboratory part of it. For something like this, the university would have to get institutional review board and human subjects committees approvals to handle these types of samples. But uh, it seems to me that there is no real data on human exposure monitoring. That's a missing part of trying to make the link to the cancers and where they came from. I'm taking it about as far as the air and the dust in people's homes and the soil and the yard where they live, but I'm not at this time doing anything in vivo, in the biological system, in a living system. I am not doing any of that at this time. Here's hoping that some associates can be found who have those credentials and are in a position to be able to move that forward, because that would provide the triangulation between your work and Joe Mangano's work and this missing piece to give us a clear picture that is not based on circumstance, but is based on the science. Yes, indeed. And I'll, I'll add, too, that we can't just look at the problem of the contaminants from the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant as just being about their radioactive properties. It isn't just a uranium problem. It's uranium and a bunch of other isotopes. But not only is uranium radioactive, and these other substances are radioactive, but they also act as chemical poisons. Uranium has been proven to interact with DNA, causing strand breaks in DNA. And that's coming as a result of its chemical properties because of how it behaves as a metal ion, as opposed to the fact that it's radioactive. And so I think extremely naive to just take a health physics standpoint and say, well, the levels of radioactivity that we're encountering here that our workers are exposed to or going out into the environment just aren't enough to hurt anybody. There's a lot more to the story than that. Every one of these uh, substances acts as a toxic agent from the chemical standpoint. The interactions of neptunium with DNA are not very well known. I've looked in the scientific literature and the trail is very, very thin on that one. There's similar concerns about technetium-99 and its interaction with the human thyroid. And once again, the literature trail is pretty thin on that. The attitude that the DOE takes is that, well, it's very long-lived. It has a very low energy beta emission, and therefore it's not very radioactive. And I guess that's true. But then they set an extremely high, I don't remember what the number is, but it's absurdly high in terms of a number of picocuries per liter that they find permissible in drinking water. There should not be any technetium-99 in drinking water. And I'll add that it occurs in this water-soluble species. So there's another one there, pertechnicate, which can go into the human thyroid. I'm not an expert in this area, but I've 
you know, thought about it a little bit and I've looked in the literature and once again, there's really no paper trail at all on that one. When we see a situation of excess cancer rates, and just let's have that sink in for a second, two excess deaths per week. What is causing that? I don't think it's all due to the radiological risks of these things. And I think it's due to complex chemical hazards of substances that also happen to be radioactive. And humans are exposed internally to them and they go into the body and they perhaps stay for a long time. One can only be grateful that you have had your attention pulled to this issue. And hopefully the work that you are doing will inspire others, perhaps a new generation or generations who are currently in college to look at these issues and go, wait a minute, I see a PhD thesis in this. I see a career path in this. And hopefully they will move on it. For now, thank you for such a clear explanation of such a complex area. And of course, for being my guest again this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. More will probably be revealed. Undoubtedly. That was Michael Ketterer, Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University, who studies the sources and behavior of radioisotopes in the environment. We'll have a link up to contact Michael on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 597. We will also have an excellent report by Dwayne Pullman of WKRC. He's the reporter who's been covering Portsmouth so well and was mentioned by Michael during the interview. This report we have posted shows him interviewing Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project on the elevated cancer rates for residents in the Piketon community. I would also like to thank Vina Colley, president of PRESS, which stands for the Portsmouth Piketon Residents for Environmental Safety and Security, and co-founder of National Nuclear Workers for Justice, for her help with this story. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. This Sunday, December 4th, at 3.30 p.m. in New York City, at the Regal Union Square Theater, the film Radioactive, the Women of Three Mile Island will have its world premiere. I would love to be there to support filmmaker Heidi Hutner and everyone who contributed to this. I'm not able to be there, but if you are going, how about becoming a reporter for Nuclear Hot Seat? Just use your smartphone to record your impressions of the film, the experience of being there with so many others who support the film and oppose nuclear, and don't be shy, interview others as well. You can have some fun, it's easy, and by getting me this audio, it will help me capture the essence of this historic event. If you're interested, shoot me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com or through my Facebook page, and I'll give you the full information on how to do this and how to get your recordings to me. Really, it's not difficult, it's a lot of fun. You too can be a special reporter for Nuclear Hot Seat. And congratulations to Paul Dorfman of the UK. In the global ranking of the top 500 positive influencers on Twitter in the categories of climate science and forecast, Paul came in as number 42. I wouldn't dream of doing this show without checking his posts, which are daily. 
and inevitably at least one or two of his stories do show up on Nuclear Hot Seat. Good to see him getting this acknowledgement, even if it is on Twitter. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 29, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, CBSNews.com, USNews.com, NewScientist.com, CBS7.com, Counterpunch.org, UtilityDive.com, EGTN.com, ArcticToday.com, TheBulletin.org, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. There are lots of ways to make certain that you receive Nuclear Hot Seat every week and don't miss a single episode. The easiest? Sign up for it at NuclearHotSeat.com. Look for the yellow box. Put in your first name and email address. Every week you will get one email with the link and a short description of the show's content. And we are on podcast formats all over the place. So if you've got a favorite way of picking up your podcast and you want to find us there, go to it. We make it easy for you to stay up to date on all things nuclear. Now, you can help us too, because if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really appreciate your help. And now, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so anything you can do We really will appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you give proper attribution. The name of the program, the website. How tough could it be? This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that ignoring the impact of nuclear radiation on our health doesn't change scientific facts. It just keeps you trapped in the danger that you will not address, but can never escape. There you have it. You've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.